Welcome to Diversity Reads. More than a book club, Diversity Reads aspires to be a space of discussion and learning where we interact with diverse fiction works from all over the world. Diversity Reads would like to take a moment of gratitude to recognize we live, learn, and create on unceded ancestral and occupied traditional lands of the Hunkamidam-speaking Musqueam people, and acknowledge that you will be joining us from many places near and far and we would like to allow space for us to acknowledge the traditional caretakers of those lands as well. I encourage you to check out nativeland.ca to learn more about what land and territory you live and work or may be visiting. My name is Coral, she, her pronouns, and I am an Afro-Dominican storyteller, producer, and activist. Twice a month, I will be guiding you through captivating reads alongside other creatives who are out to disrupt and deepen our worldview. Today, we will be discussing The Return by Danny Laferriere. Born in Haiti, Danny spent his childhood with his grandmother, Da, in Petit Guave. He began his career in journalism by reporting for the weekly Le Petit Samedi Soir and for Radio Haiti in Ted. In 1976, following the assassination of his friend and fellow journalist, Gassner Raymond, he fled the Duvalier dictatorship and settled in Quebec. In 1985, he published his first novel, How to Make Love to a Negro Without Getting Tired, which garnered him critical acclaim and launched his career as one of the most prominent representatives of a new generation of Quebecois writers. In 1985, he published his first novel, how to Make Love to a Negro Without Getting Tired, which garnered him critical acclaim and launched his career as one of the most prominent representatives of a new generation of Quebecois writers. In 2009, Danny published Le Nique du Retour, or The Return in English, which solidified his reputation as an author of well-placed, powerful books and awarded him acclamation in Francophone literature. He advocates for creative vision without preconceived boundaries and proclaims it is the writer's responsibility to invent his own language. Before we head into our discussion, I would like to introduce our amazing guest, Java Coffee. He is a poet, musician, public speaker, and author of Refugee, The Journey Much Desired. Originally from the Democratic Republic of Congo, he has lived and traveled in multiple countries as a refugee. He appreciates multiculturalism, is highly passionate about youth empowerment, and advocates for recognition and resolution of minority issues, especially issues affecting refugee youth. At the University of British Columbia, Kofi has worked as a co-representative of African Studies Minor Program and as president of the UBC Africa Awareness Initiative. He has volunteered as a wellness peer as well. In Vancouver, he currently serves as a member of the advisory board for Level Youth Granting, an initiative by the Vancouver Foundation focused on indigenous and racialized immigrants and refugee youth people. He also serves as an advisor for Amala, a charity organization which provides education to displaced youth globally. Inspired by his lived experiences, he's taught seminars focused on refugee experiences during Yale Young Global Scholar Program at Yale University. Currently, he's working on a small poetry book and a children's book. Welcome, Java. 
Thank you so much, Kerr. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. just reading your biography just inspired me to do so much more. I was like, oh my God, look at amazing people doing amazing things. How can I best support them? How can I be, can I best like become a person that also does amazing things? Oh my um, goodness. So I am incredibly honored to, to have you. You are. <laughs> Uh, I'm incredibly honored to have you here to discuss this amazing book, um, The Return by Danny Laferriere. Our narrator, Danny, has been eating fat for three decades in Montreal while everyone has gone eating lean in Port-au-Prince when a call informs him of the death of his father in New York. Journalist and political activist, he and his father before him were forced to flee their homeland under regimes of another father and son, the dictators Papa Doc and Baby Doc Duvalier, who did everything in their power to destroy a functioning middle class through corruption, intimidation, execution, or exile between the years 1957 and 1986. After traveling to New York for his father's funeral, the narrator continues on to Haiti, bearing with him his father's spirit which he returns to native ground, the ancestral village of Baraderes. But first, he reconnects with his mother, who hides her pain and grief from him, his sister, whom he knows too well and not at all, his nephew, who desires to be a writer, his father's old friends and his own, who have found several different ways of living amongst the ruined hopes of their youth. Some of the themes that we would like to highlight throughout this discussion have to do with the ideas of home and displacement, which are some yeah. of the most highlighted themes in the story. And the idea of home as a place that we imagine at some points, not even a physical space. And I would like to start with the idea of the third and fourth world country. Yeah. And a portion of the story Danny narrates, Billy is obsessed by his younger brother, who took on the name Tupac Escacur, fascination with American culture, even in the poorest regions of the fourth world. The idea that countries such as Haiti or the Democratic Republic of Congo or the Dominican Republic where I'm from are considered fourth world countries. Yeah, it's very, it's, it's very interesting. Um, as you were talking about home being one of the central themes, you actually reminded me in one of my poems. Um, when I'm writing about home, I say, if home is where heart is, then home is everywhere. Then home is nowhere, you know? Because no. what is home, really? Uh, <laughs> Home, like home as a physical location, but also home as an imagined kind of uh, space that you hold in your mind, in your heart, but also like in your physical being, it becomes very different in that sense. And uh, I guess, uh, you know, the idea of the third or fourth world country, <clears throat> when I'm thinking about these highly politicized terms, this kind of highly politicized terms, which are bestowed to be, you know, very polite <laughs> as people who come from these countries by Westerners uh, um, and frankly speaking, mostly all the white dudes who you know, have <laughs> been holding spaces of power for 
God, since God knows when. People who uh, have tried to invade our country several times. <laughs> yeah. It's like when these names are bestowed on us, there is no consideration that for us, that's our first world. That's where we live. That's what we know. Uh, but at the same time, like because these are the terminologies used in media, terminologies used in uh, like many different books, many different discourses, kind of forces us who come from those countries to aspire, you know, for a better life, yes, uh, better yes. experience. <laughs> no, so, and like going a little bit off of that, the idea that um, our cultures are underneath these cultures that we should aspire to be more like. Exactly. Yeah. So where we belong in our countries of origin, and of course, I'm saying this very cognizant that, you know, as a refugee and also someone who knows more about migrant experiences, refugee experiences, sometimes you don't have a choice but to leave home. Um, you know, but for everyone else is living in these countries and have a normal life, their perception of home is always influenced by this hegemonic uh, understanding of the West being better, the developed world being better, hence they always want to live. So they don't necessarily appreciate home as in like the physical space, the, their culture, their roots, as much as we who have been forced to live kind of appreciate it, uh, appreciate it in retrospect, you know? So the idea of home in that sense, it's, it's a very interesting concept. Yes, no, and as a person who had the choice to leave their home as an immigrant, I will say that, yes, it's, it's very different um, appreciating home in the sense of coming, coming from a space where it's, I don't see myself growing in opportunities as I see myself in the West, mm -hmm. even if it's not the conscious mentality I have is the mentality that has been implemented to me since my childhood. Like I remember being in fifth grade and telling my mom, I'm going to go to university in the United States. I, that didn't end up happening because at the time that I was applying for universities was also the Trump election. So I decided that Canada was a safer <laughs> choice. But <laughs> that same mentality of when I grow up, I'm going to get out because there's more choices, there's more opportunities. And who's to say there isn't at home? <laughs> who's to say they, there isn't? Um, and honestly, throughout the years, one of the things that I've come to see about my mentality is that it's shifted from I'm going to get a better, better life in the West mm -hmm. to I'm going to craft myself to make a better life happen in the Dominican Republic. Exactly. That's always my mentality. Yes, something um, something also my parents don't understand. So, in the book we are talking about Papa Doc and uh, Baby Doc. Good uh, old dictators. Kind of, <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of emblematic of the different generations. And uh, for me, when I think about it, the kind of conversations I have with my father and my mother, so two different like generations, there's always this is striking difference between. Uh, how we perceive the idea of home for them they are like oh you are in Canada you are doing well at university you are trying to you are starting to build a career remain there you know 
everything is good. But for me, I'm like, no, nothing is good. Here, I'm the other. I'm not myself. Yes. I want to go back to where I feel like I belong. You know, I always speak about the joy that kind of overwhelms me when I land in Johannesburg in South Africa on my way back to Eswati where my parents and my family has found refuge. You know, like just the joy of seeing a sea of black people. I don't know if that's a metaphor that I can apply, you know, that blackness and then hearing seven different languages being spoken in one locality, seeing men shouting from across the hall. Yes. (laughs) That being like, it's just amazing. Something that you can't really find if you are in Frankfurt in Germany or even here in Vancouver, because the culture is so different. The understanding of humanity is so different. So yeah, differences in generations, differences in perceptions. Like for me, I'm like, I want to do what I have to do here and then get back home. Yes. Um, and the idea of generations is also that is brought up in the books, mm-hmm. specifically this conversation in which a young man tells the narrator that what the country needs is a dictator to create order. <laughs> and I find that fascinating because back home in the Dominican Republic, we also had a very notorious dictator, um, mm-hmm. Trujillo. And him, it was awful if you look into the history of it. And the fun fact about that dictatorship that I find incredibly hilarious is that we took Jew refugees during World War II. There is a decent Jew population in the northern side of the island because we took in Jew refugees mm. during a dictatorship where people were being killed for breathing too loud and women were being raped left and right. Um, it's, um, but I find, uh, going back to the topic, to the conversation, I find fascinating people mm. being like, oh, what we need is a dictator to create order. It's like, no, <laughs> <laughs> we've had experience with those. They really don't do what you think they're <laughs> going to do. No, they don't, they don't. And, uh, yeah, yeah, like in the DRC, so 1960s, when you gain independence and, uh, the democratically elected prime minister, Patrice Lumumba, who is always hailed as one of the champions of really African independence. Six months later, he was assassinated in conspiracy by the CIA, again, talking about the first world. Uh, ironically, these are some of the things they do. Uh, like the assassination was called by CIA along with the Belgian government, the UK, uh, you know, and they kind of um, crowned this dictator, um, Mobutu, who ended up ruling for, I think, more than more than 20 something years, you know, um, simply because the West could access the resources. So I'm very much familiar with the idea of dictatorship, because even after Mobutu, then we had like another dictator come in and then another dictator come in. It's just, I think two years ago that we had the first so-called democratic election. And uh, I don't know how the country is doing right now. And you know, you can't know whether they are going to be dictators until the term. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> 
<laughs> Usually they're named dictators out loud after they're gone. So <laughs> that's also another thing. Well, else after the people like us are gone from the countries and uh, you know, I like something I find striking in the book is this um I think something that you also noted in the summary that um, like you can only be Haitian when you're outside the country, outside Haiti. Yes, yes, something the that, idea of uh, national identity. I I yes. found that fascinating because it is incredibly relatable. Not only national identity, I want to say also regional identity. Because um, mm. um, in my personal case, I am Latina when I am in Canada. <laughs> when I am in the DR, I'm not even Dominican. I am from the capital. And I am one of the light-skinned people from the capital. Mm-hmm. It, it gets hyper-specific because experiences within our own context are incredibly diverse. Yeah. Um, but when you are outside, you only have that one link that people relate to. I will say, though, I've been asked if the Dominican Republic is in Africa. So that tells something about our geo, like our need for better geography courses. Um, but... We are very, very welcome to, very happy to welcome you in Africa. We accepted. <laughs> the Haitians, Dominican, Dominicans, uh, you know, folks from the Caribbean, you know, <laughs> welcome back to the motherland. Honestly. <laughs> but there is a need for educating the West, honestly, about like not only the history, but also the geography. Um, You know, me and you, I know, Cora, um, we are very much advocates of equity, diversity, and inclusion. And these are buzzwords that are always thrown at people here in Canada, especially. It's a very multicultural country, but multicultural from like which cultures? Yes. Ask people, oh, here's an Afghan woman. Where is Afghanistan? How many people can actually point to the map? It's even worse when you go in America, in the U.S., (laughs) Uh, so it's like for me it always amazes me that you know we can always advance these values or try to advocate but so many people know very little about these cultures of origin of the people Uh, yes um and just i wanted to ask you have you seen those videos where they try to make americans point towards america but they flip (laughs) the map so you have um, Europe, Africa, and Asia on the left side, and you have America as a whole continent on the right side, and they just don't know where things are, um, even by the shape of it. Because um, people are so used to seeing the map from one perspective. Um, that speaks a lot. It speaks yeah. ton. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, it tells a lot. And I like. I don't want to put this all on... Um, Americans like geography I think is poorly taught in a lot of places um, especially when it comes to west uh, eastern regions Um, like I'm pretty sure I couldn't point out most countries in Asia and Africa on a map but I am willing to learn and I've been learning I've been trying to learn um, yeah, but, but you yes. see, like that willingness to learn or so like say something, because for us, we learn, it's, we have little choice, really. Like even me growing up, I was learning more of the geography of the West, like the history of the West. You would find that some kids in primary school know more about American presidents 
Yes. Than, well, it's easy to know the Congolese president because there have only <laughs> been like how many <laughs> talking about dictatorship. But the education system is skewed uh, because it's also kind of influenced by the West. We are learning more. Uh, it's like it's no wonder that we end up growing up like aspiring to go to the West because we hear those stories. We grow up being accustomed to those stories, and there are very few countries very few cultures in which they're actually teaching from the indigenous ways of learning, uh, prioritizing the indigenous wisdom and knowledge. Um, yes. But anyway, so like home, it's it's a very interesting concept. And already you can see just by invoking the idea home, we are talking about politics, geography, you know, like the different socioeconomic aspects of being. It's a it's a deeply uh, like interesting idea yeah and especially when you add displacement to it like what does home become mm. um like when i was reading this book haiti and the dominican republic share an island and a lot mm. of the concepts that are brought up in the book i found myself deeply connected to mm. um in a way that i never felt when i was in the dominican republic because haitian issues are not discussed in the dominican republic okay Oh, that's and interesting. Yes, it's it's super interesting. Um, like the Dominican Republic is incredibly racist against Haiti. Mm. Um, there's this uh, idea that black people are from Haiti and then light skins are from the Dominican Republic, which is a lie. <laughs> we are a whole, like the whole island is the size of the state of New York. <laughs> Calm yourselves down. And just looking at Haiti from the eyes of a Haitian, from somebody that has love for Haiti, it's such a different narrative than mm. looking at Haiti from the lenses of a hatred-fueled, pro-Trujillo, pro-dictator, um, Dominican, because there, there, there's a lot of pro-Trujillo mm. people in the Dominican, it's kind of worrying. Um, but one of the things that I think made me feel the most just, I highly understand where you're coming from mm. it's this line the night before i drank some fruit juice from a stall along my way just to prove that i was still a son of my soil <laughs> nationalism can trick my mind but not my guts <laughs> yeah yeah the idea that we try so hard to be a part of that community that raised us but things change with time yeah especially when we're away and we come back and change has happened it's mm. not just us changing in our new environment it's our home environment changing as well and yeah, we exactly. go back and we're like oh i haven't had these flavors in a long time mm. oh my god when did that mall show up or what happened to the park that was over there that idea that both of us are constantly changing, but we're not changing with each other because yeah. one of us is an outsider now. So like something about that, you know, um, I left my home country when I was 11. So technically the conception of like my traditional lands, you know, the conception of my people, the conception of whatever is going is happening in my country it still influenced that experience of a zero to 11 year old you know so i know 
I know, trust me, my home is changing. I know, like, I, mentally speaking, I know that it's changing, but emotionally I'm connected to that. It's almost as if it's become sacred for me. When I think about home, it's the memories I associate it with. So the idea that the mall could be somewhere or another village could have been eliminated, again, to be polite, you know, eliminated, that's a code word for, <laughs> a code word that I'm creating right now for <laughs> completely massacred by different militia groups, most of them sponsored by Western corporations who are interested in oil and uh, other natural resources, you know, mm -hmm. minerals, timber, uh, like the idea that something could have changed, it, it, it doesn't appeal to me. I want home to be what it is when I left it. Um, and, you know, it's, like, it's sad to think about it. You can tell that from like the author himself, um, when he's going back to Haiti or the main character in the book, so to say, when he's going back, um, like they are greeted with the familiar and the unfamiliar. Yeah. In a sense, there is that familiarity because they've lived there, but so much has changed, you know. Yeah. And it kind of scares me for when I do get a chance of going back home. Um, yeah, and I think another scary thing about that idea is the things that have not changed, the things that have stayed mm -hmm. the same. But we have changed just enough that those things also seem unfamiliar. Um, and then uh, when you were talking, I just thought about this quote from the book that I think summarizes your feelings to a T. Um, mm. Exile in time is more pitiless than exile in space. I miss my childhood more intensely than my country. I can relate to that 100%. Uh, and this is like something I always question myself. I mean, I write and... Uh, you like when you're reading my biography by the way i always i think i've told you this how like i always feel humbled when somebody is reading my biography i'm like really that's me <laughs> <laughs> but you talked about me working on a, a children's book and a poetry book throughout my writing of course i try to invoke some of my childhood experiences because that's pretty much the only way i can relive them you know that's the only way I can relieve that life. And uh, the, the idea that uh, like something has changed, but at the same time, I don't want it to change. You know, the idea that, I don't know where I'm going with this. Can you remind me the quote that you just read? Um, exile in time is more exile in time exactly exile in time so like every time when I'm writing I'm like am I connecting more to the geographical space that I have left behind or am I connecting more to the time kind of the historical context or like the lived experiences in that time and Sometimes I don't feel as nostalgic to the geographical space as much as I feel nostalgic to the time that I lived, you yeah. know. Yeah, and it's it's a like it's an interesting thing to think about. I think it's sad. It's yeah. sad that we can have so much longing um, 
holding on to these memories as if nothing changed, yet we are very well aware that so much has changed and everything has changed. Um, and as much as the geographical kind of the space still exists, you know, the time has moved on. We have moved on. Yeah, the time only exists in our memories at this point. Mm -hmm. Yes, no. And that idea that when we live, uh, when we leave these spaces, um, even if we come back, we cannot relate to the experiences of those that stayed because mm -hmm. we have a completely different worldview of this at that point, even if just from being exposed to another culture, to another language, to mm -hmm. another kind of other traditional behaviors in a way. I think um, when I moved to Canada, one of the strangest realizations that I had was not everybody speaks Spanish here. <laughs> <laughs> and I know that's a weird realization to have, but I just yeah. came to notice that I will go days without speaking Spanish. When I once lived a life, but that was the only language that I spoke. Yeah. And, um, but also English has given me access to so much information that I don't know I would have reached if I had only stayed in a world in Spanish. Yeah, um, no, it's, it's always like, <laughs> there are always pros and cons. Of uh, course. So for me, I can, <laughs> uh, I can communicate in at least six different languages, English and French included, <laughs> you know? But sometimes I question myself if I can communicate in any language. Um, um, so one of my idols, uh, Ngugi Wationgo, is a Kenyan uh, writer, activist, uh, really like involved in uh, like a, a huge advocate of the Pan-African idea, but also decolonization. I recommend you to read his book, um, uh, Decolonizing the Mind, if you haven't. Oh, definitely yes. taking note of that. Decolonizing the Mind. In decolonizing the mind, he talks about the idea of a language. He's like, if you can speak all the languages of the world, but you can't speak your mother language, then you can't speak any language. But if you can speak your mother tongue, even if you can't speak any other language, you know, then you can speak. And this is something that I feel a lot because I've kind of lost touch with my mother tongues. Now, when we talk about Swahili, the way I speak Swahili, it's so diluted. I feel like I'm able to express myself better in English than in Swahili, than in Kinyabuisha, which I grew up speaking, than French. Um, funny enough, English like is the fourth language that I learned. So we're talking about the third world and the fourth world, you know, we can talk about the third culture, fourth culture kind of kids, even like third language, fourth language. This idea that you keep on building the different identities, but then where do we belong, really? Yes. You know? yes. Um, and seeing the world through so many different filters, because I don't think people take into account how much language influences how you see the world. Exactly. Yeah, so I like I come back to you, uh, like to what you just said. You know, learning English has given you so much access. It's true. You know, being able to speak French and English, being able to understand a f like a fair bit of uh, Chichewa and Sisuati, 
I can relate to all these cultures in multiple ways, but I'm always going to feel this emptiness of not really connecting deeply to my culture. And that's something that also Daniela Farrier kind of invokes in the book. You know, this feeling of ineptness, like you are not enough, like it is not enough because you are going back to your roots. Um, something that you, you said in the summary when you are reading it as well, like reconnecting with his sister whom he knows too well and not at all, you know, there is always this lack, this void that needs to be filled simply because you've been uprooted from your culture of origin, your land, your traditional ways of being, your community, and you've been replanted elsewhere, even when you are thriving and you are growing. And for me, um, I'll be honest with you, this is something that bothers me many times. Most of the times when I'm feeling like I'm really sad, I'm feeling like I'm really stressed. Like this longing for my childhood, which wasn't like very rosy, by the way, I should say, <laughs> you know, I'm growing up in times of conflicts in uh, like as much as I was sheltered from so many things. Uh, but that's home. I knew that I could relate to that. I was innocent. People could die and I would be fine with that, you know. <laughs> That sounds very, very tragic. It is tragic. But it's like, I, when I'm stressed, I feel that, um, like that ineptness, that, uh, that longing to be fulfilled by something more than just being in Vancouver in Canada, a beautiful place, having a room and like a huge bed, you know, uh, being in one of the best universities in the world, all these things are add-ons to our core identities, which you kind of lose by fleeing, by migrating. Yeah. Um, and um, this, there's this quote that I think relates to this idea quite beautifully mm. from the book. Between the journey and the return, stuck mm. in the middle, this rotten time can lead to madness. That moment comes when you stop recognizing yourself in the mirror. You've lived too long without witnesses. <laughs> yes, that idea that not only are you separating yourself from your home culture, but that idea of you've lived too long without witnesses, you've lived too long without people that reinforce culture within you that reinforce traditions within you. It's quite, I find it quite relatable, um, especially when I look into the different communities that are available here in Vancouver. Mm. Um, I was having a conversation with someone a couple of weeks back um, where I talk about the fact that I don't relate much to how the Latino community is perceived here. Because I find that the continental Latin America experience mm. and the Caribbean Latin American experience is quite different in how different cultures influence us in our relationship mm. with the land and our relationship with each other. And I find myself finding more comfort in the Caribbean culture. But then there's the lack there, mm. which I mentioned earlier, of the language. We share a lot of culture, 
but we defer in such a crucial part of identity in which mm. we don't communicate the world the same way. Um, you, you see, so, yeah, I hate that they keep coming back to this idea of colonization. And I guess in this conversation is the very first time I'm naming it outright. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it is, it is a, a yeah, you know, huge part of the piece of our experiences. And yeah, I, I lived in, in Malawi when, uh, so uh, like I lived for a little bit in the refugee camp in Malawi. And then I went to high school, uh, Boys Secondary School. And then during the holidays, I could visit my father in Sangano where he had like built a small grocery shop. Um, where in Sangano, so there is a road, like the main road that separates Malawi from Mozambique. And it's literally passes like through both countries, divides the Chewa community into two. The Chewas is one of the large ethnic groups in, in Malawi. So the Mozambican Chewas and the Malawian Chewas ancestrally the same culture, same tradition, but now one is speaking English, the other one is speaking um, Portuguese, you know, because Mozambique was colonized by Portugal mm -hmm. and uh, Malawi was colonized by the British. And the way they relate to each other, the way they communicate, completely different. They've been so shaped by that, that to some extent it also leads to conflicts. Uh, but I wanted to come back to this quote that you just read, you know, you've lived too long without witnesses. You know, we, when I read that, the very first thing that came to mind, uh, being in the Western countries, is how much we don't get noticed. You know, in any sub-Saharan sub African country that I have lived in, it's very cultural to pass by somebody and look them in the eye and say, good morning. Yeah. You know, in Swaziland, <laughs> Saubona or Sanbonan, if there are many. In Malawi, Mwaswerabwanj, you know. In Swahili, Jambo. Here, you walk on the street, some people are going to smile, but... If you are a person of color, that number of people who smile at you significantly decreases. So you navigate this reality without being noticed. The only time you are ever noticed is when you are within your friend's group. So living with too long without witnesses, it's like a day, especially if you are not well-to-do, if you are a struggling immigrant here, it's like a day becomes eternity. Yes. Because you realize that you are living in a very isolated world and nobody notices you. So you have no witness to that life you are living. Now, like compare this to being in our cultures of origin where there are always these cultural ceremonies where you can sing a song and other people can quickly jump in, where you can dance and other people are going to play the music, where there is storytelling evenings, you know, where kids gather around their grandmothers. And again, speaking about this, I realize that it's a lot of nostalgia for me, yeah, yeah. wanting to go back and inhabit that time that I have lost. But it's like everyone is a witness to your life, to your existence, because you don't live in isolation. You live in coexistence with everyone around you. Here, I could sleep in my room and pass out and a week later, when my corpse starts thinking, 
this is too graphic i'm sorry but it's true it is then somebody is going to call the police and they're like i think something is wrong in that house a week later if i'm gone for three hours from my community in swaziland even somebody's going to notice all the aunties are going to start calling exactly (laughs) exactly so this this like uh danny lafariel really his writing is so amazing and he invokes so many things kind of very pertinent to his Haitian identity and his immigrant identity in Canada, the US, I guess, but also very universal in the, theme, in the way that we experience like our daily lives as people coming from different parts of the world that have been labeled third world countries or fourth world countries. Yeah, no, and it's just, it's so beautifully tragic how relatable it all is. <laughs> um, beautifully I, tragic. I love the, the oxymoron. Is that how what you call it in English? I think Oops. so, yeah. <laughs> Here we are, two non-native English speakers trying to figure out how to say a word in English. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, but something I wanted to mention um, when it came to like colonization and traditional languages. So before colonization, as I mentioned, Haiti and the Dominican Republic, one island. It mm. went by two Taino names. Um, the Taino language was Arawak, and those mm. were the indigenous people of the island. And it went by two indigenous names. One of them was Quisqueya. Mm which is a name that has been adopted by the Dominican Republic. And it means mother of all lands in Arawak. Mm. The other name is Ajiti, flower of highland. And it is the name that Haiti uses until today. Okay. And I found it, as I said, so beautifully tragic that one culture got so divided by issues that did not belong to it, (laughs) that now they are two incredibly distinct identities. Mm. Um, And as you mentioned, kind of the idea with uh, Mozambique and Malawi. Yeah. Did I get those words correctly? Okay, great. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That idea that we're so similar but issues that do not belong to us from the so-called first and second world, I guess, mm. have divided us so utterly that crossing a road can shift your whole perspective. And yeah, I don't know. I find that. Yeah, I know it's tragic, but now, um, also. like if we can shift this, conversation a little bit and uh, you know I don't know how much you read about uh, African migrants trying to access Europe so Haiti was colonized by the French and the Dominican Republic by the Spanish which is primarily why like these two different identities have been carved out of one culture yeah Africa like just been colonized by pretty much like the entire Western Europe 
ما ينعز إيطالي I don't know what Italians are doing. Uh, they tried to get into Ethiopia and I mean, Eritrea, they got another but... failed attempt with the Roman Empire. They just kind of gave up. Uh, but I don't know, really. <laughs> but anyways, um, when you look at the number of migrants trying to cross the Mediterranean Sea to get into Europe, it's really sad. And then when you look at the reaction of Europeans, uh, especially like the right-leaning politi- politicians and uh, uh, like, like, politi- like those affiliating to those kind of values, when they are like, we don't need migrants, you know, take that back to Africa. For me, I look at that and I'm like, do you realize that these people are leaving their cultures? They are leaving their countries of origin. They are leaving poverty because of how much you've exploited them. Yes. <laughs> you know, because of how much we've divided them. In a way, you are what you are because of the exploitation that you have done, the damage that you have caused. The least you can do is to open your arms and welcome them. Yes. And be like, okay, create a home here as much as you can. But nobody seems to reckon with that. Nobody seems to recognize that. This really like it bothers me a lot. When you look at how many boats capsize uh, off the coast of Senegal, off the coast of Libya, off the coast of Italy, off the coast yes. of Portugal. I remember this really news sad. article not that long ago about boats that like they just didn't allow them to enter Italy. They were already there. They just didn't allow them. It... At that point, I don't even blame like the country i just blame the lack of human decency um, <laughs> um it's just it's heartbreaking and also you reminded me of my trip to europe last not last summer the summer before that <laughs> mm-hmm. the last true summer um and we went to this cathedral in saragossa spain mm-hmm. there was a beautiful plaque This cathedral was just so much. There was so many little details and decorations made of gold and bronze. Um, it was stunning to look at. There was this plaque mm-hmm. that said, made with, with gold from the Dominican Republic. And that stung. I will say that. That stung. <laughs> Because this cathedral was obviously made in the 1700s, 1800s. Mm-hmm. And we know what was happening then. Yep. So it's, it was, it was a confrontation with our reality. I was aware, but I didn't see the fruit, the kind of like the fruition of that reality and the other side. I saw the reality in the Dominican Republic, in my country, yeah. in the colonized country. I didn't see the reality in the colonizer. And yeah, no, it's sad. It's sad. And uh, you know, I, I would like to also kind of relate to what you are saying to our direct context here. Yes. Uh, you know, some of your listeners probably might be like, ah, okay, that's Europe. But you know, like even here, Canada is still a colonial country. You know, many, many indigenous communities being decimated through residential schools. And right now, they can't access spaces which are in their traditional and ancestral lands. 
what does that tell you? So you talk about the lack of humanity, human decency. Um, like it's it, it's everywhere. It's here. It's yeah. here. You look at the U.S. Um, the treatment of black people, people who came in as slaves, who like whose ancestors built the country. You know. Um, yeah, there is just so much damage that has been done, like arising from slavery, arriving from arising from co- co- colonization. That sometimes, sometimes I'm like, yeah, at least you know, I know myself, I know my dreams, my vision, I know like folks like Cora, you know, really inspiring with the work we are doing to decolonize. So I can see a light at the end of the tunnel. And to use one of those colonial metaphors. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but at the same time, I'm like, really, is this really ever going to end? It is, it is hard. The work that we do, the work that a lot of amazing Black and Indigenous folks are doing, it is hard. Because it's going to take as much work to dismantle as mm. it took to form. And it took hundreds of years to form. Yeah. Yeah, And there's an interlapse in which things were both forming and dismantling. And that's also something we have to take into account. Mm. Um, it's, it's a reality that we live, but we are worth it. We're worth the effort. Our community is 120% worth the effort. Um, our our future worth the effort and this is why I think it's important that we tell us stories such as the story that Danny has so beautifully shared with us in this mm. book and I would like to ask you why do we tell our stories oh <laughs> why do we tell our stories um that's a, that's a very interesting question. Tell your story. That's a very interesting question. And you might not like the answer that I'm going to give you. You know, storytelling. So storytelling is a core aspect of many indigenous cultures. When you're stripped of everything else, including your dignity, by the way. Yeah. You know, sometimes the stories are all you are left with. Many people will come to me and be like, oh my goodness, you know, John Michael, before I changed my name to Jabba, John Michael, I really love your story. I like your story. He keeps speaking to me. Like sometimes people connect more with my story than myself. They'll be like, John Michael, Jabba, I really love your story. So for them, my story takes a precedent to who I am. If I didn't have the story that I carry with me, it's almost as if I would be invisible. Again, talking about living without witnesses. In a way, my story is what allows me to gather witnesses. People who are like, oh, look at that guy. He's lived as a refugee. He's a strength for education. Look at the work he's doing. You know, people connect to the story. So for me, when it comes to telling my story or my stories, because I really don't think there is one singular story that defines an individual. It's just an intersection of so many of them 
just like our identities. There is that seeking for acknowledgement, you know, but there is also a survival mechanism to it. So much has been stripped away from me, my culture, my, like, my identity, my nationality. And people are trying to define me all the time. Look at this black man or look at this refugee. Uh, like for those who had the chance of reading my book, look at this Muburundi if you are in Malawi, look at this Mshangan if you are in Swaziland. It's like we are constantly being defined that as telling stories is our way of asserting our own definitions of ourselves. And, you know, I can talk about this as a, like, as a black man and a refugee, you know, like as a Latina, as a woman, you can probably like say the same thing. A trans person can say the same thing. You know, um, people who identify like, like the, the LGBTQ plus communities, um, you find that the society has defined them for so long that now them sharing their experiences as painful as it is at times, it's their way of reclaiming that identity. So for me, that's why I tell stories. And, you know, uh, as if this is not sad enough, sometimes the stories are all that you have. We cling to those stories because they remind us of where we come from, who we are and how we got here. And hopefully where we want to go. Because when I'm talking about my identity as a refugee, oh, it's not like, yeah, he comes from this country, he's lived in this number of refugee camps. There is also an aspect to it that I don't want to be a refugee forever. I don't want my kids to be refugees. So in a sense, there is hope in that. The different projects and initiatives I'm doing, you know, trying to change that narrative and impact uh, my fellow youth, but also the next generation such that they don't live with that mark of refugees, that they can at least tell stories that are a bit more optimistic, positive, you know, comedic instead of being tragic. So yeah, I could go on for like 36 hours straight talking about why storytelling is very important, especially for me. Yeah, no, that was a beautiful answer. And I think it tells a lot about yourself as an author, a poet, a musician, you find ways to tell stories to connect with every single person in every way they prefer. <laughs> and, Try to meet them where they are because I know for many of them won't come to me. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's a beautiful skill to have to be able to encounter people where they're at and just go, let me tell you my story. Thank you so much, Java, for meeting with me today. I think this was a beautiful discussion and I hope our audience is able to take our conversation and take it forward because we can see how from fiction work, mm -hmm. from all diverse authors, we can find our own world and identify with all or even just a little bit of it. Absolutely. So thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a wonderful conversation. And for everyone out there, please make sure to check out Java's book, Refugee, The Journey Much Desired. It is a wonderful story of resilience, grief, and hope. So I highly recommend it. Thank you. Any for parting words? We really appreciate it. <laughs>
and it's, it's it's been a pleasure thank you so much for like having me i really enjoyed this conversation uh, and i hope the people who are tuning in are going to feel confident enough to confront their identities no matter what they are and appreciate their identities but also appreciate all the multiple beautiful identities that exist out there indeed so, share those stories <laughs> To our wonderful audience, thank you so much for tuning in. And thank you to UBCers and Culture Districts for making this podcast possible. Don't forget to check out UBCers and Culture District on Instagram and Facebook. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Diversity Reads Podcast. Thank you. <laughs>